I'm a bus driver. Yeah, my work is a check it. I'm a tube driver. I've been a private pilot for the last four years. I work at a Weatherspoons and Hello, I'm Mark Thomas and welcome to Keywords, the podcast that talks to key workers about their lives through COVID-19. Episode 2, Going the Extra Mile. COVID-19 is a global crisis the like of which none of us have ever seen before, and the response required is a massive collective effort. Announcing lockdown in March 2020, Johnson dives straight into his bedside Churchill dictionary to tell us we had an obligation to, quote, directly enlist in this, quote, fight against COVID. In truth, many key workers were way ahead of the curve. Whilst the NHS embarked on the Herculean effort of reconfiguring entire hospitals and equipping themselves to face the onslaught of cases, their fellow emergency workers stepped up to do their bit, unlike Johnson, who didn't even manage to stay out of hospital. Dave works in the fire service in the Midlands, and here he outlines the extra work firefighters took on. There were three uh, activities which uh, the fire services embarked on. The first was delivering of uh, essential items to people who who were kind of isolated inside their homes, particularly like the vulnerable people. The second was ambulance driving. The final one was uh, the movement, uh, what's called body movement, so basically assist the undertakers. Emergency planners highlighted early on the intense pressure the ambulance service was likely to come under. And in order to maximise the paramedics available, firefighters were asked to take on the roles of drivers. One of those firefighters to volunteer to work with the ambulance service was Roy. Obviously working on an ambulance service over the years, you sort of you have a mutual respect for for the work they do and if they're in trouble and and we can help then yeah i just feel that it was a there was a, a duty to go and go and help see part of it's i guess altruistic and part of it's sort of like just your own ego wanting to help out i did feel like we um, london was in crisis and if there was something i could do to help I wanted to do that. This job needed doing and it needed doing immediately, leaving little time for attending courses to acquire new skills. Firefighters had to quickly build on their existing abilities. We did like a one day, in <laughs> very, very quick one day introduction into how an ambulance works, how their equipment works. Not the, the medical equipment, but, but just the, the physical equipment of taking patients on and off, the trolleys, the chairs where everything's stored in an ambulance, how to drive one. I've been a blue light driver for nearly 10 years uh, driving fire engines. <laughs> the fire engines are a lot better put together than ambulances. <laughs> um, they're like 16 tonnes and, and, and they do hold the road a bit better. At it. We did find that very quickly in ambulances, a little bit like driving a boat, especially on blue lights, so to sort of move around a little bit more. At the start of the pandemic, no one knew what would happen. And the emergency services made preparations for mass fatalities occurring outside of hospital, at home. Dave, who you heard at the start of the podcast, volunteered to work in the body removal team. I asked him to describe the team and what they did. A medical professional, a doctor or a paramedic, would travel in the first vehicle, would arrive on scene, uh, make an assessment and obviously pronounce the the member of the public as deceased. 
then the police were going afterwards and they had uh, body cameras. So they were, I think they were filming for the coroner, assuring themselves that there was no foul play involved in the person's death. Our job was to place the person in the body uh, bag, if you like. We'd be wearing a high level of PPE um, because we'd be getting close to the, the individual. We would then be place the, the person in the body bag and then we would sanitise the body bag so that it was safe for us to basically put onto the undertaker's van. The, the fat members of the family were on scene, so they were outside the front of the house or they were in another room. So that was difficult. The fire service does have training, experience and support for dealing with mass fatalities, as Dave points out. We had our, our technical rescue unit teams working on these on these kind of shifts because they'd had experience with going to like natural disasters across the world where they'd encountered like mass bodies. So part of their preparation was sharing the load in order to lessen its impact. The idea of it really is to get as many people doing this as possible. To have the same people doing it over and over again is probably not healthy mentally because again, you're seeing something which is not part of everyday life. But no matter how prepared or experienced people were, it was still a daunting and unenviable task. The night before my first shift, I was lying, lying in bed and I was thinking to myself, actually, what have I just volunteered myself for? Because I could find, any, I could find anyone. There could be children. There could be, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to see. I was struck not just by the potentially dangerous and essential work here, but also the care and consideration that was going to be involved. That is the centre of our approach. It's always the dignity of the person. So the way we approach it is we try and imagine or pretend that this, this person is a member of our family to give them the best amount of dignity as possible. Firefighters were not the only key workers to take on new roles and build on existing skills. Sorry to sound like a self-help book. This is Rachel, who's a teacher talking about volunteering to help vulnerable adults. Because I've got a DBS, I ended up doing work for adult social care, which was going out and doing safe and well checks for people who were shielding. So this was people that they hadn't been able to reach by phone or uh, letter. Although when people took a bit long to answer the door, I always just had my heart in my mouth a little bit, you know, because you're like, oh, God, you never know what's going to be there. Um, and I only had one false alarm where someone didn't answer the door and I, and I did call the police. I think the willingness of Roy and Dave and indeed Rachel to step up exemplifies a communal spirit, a, a Public service, a desire to help that exists throughout all key workers that I spoke to. And it existed before COVID. This is Carmen, who works in social services. She also volunteers. She has been trying to access care for a client off of her own back. I'm also uh, supporting someone as an unpaid carer, volunteer carer. And I had been trying to get him some support through self-directed support since 2015 and uh, we've been trying to get support from the local authority and it's been just uh, a long journey and this person is still with no support. So yeah, paid hours and unpaid hours, <laughs> I would say. Paid hours and unpaid hours. 
This was Cameron's big society. Cut government spending and increase volunteering. Move the pressure elsewhere as long as it is off the balance sheet. Some in government see no problem with this. So when they leave office, let's give them an unpaid pension. Their lobbying work can get unpaid bonuses and they can get an unpaid attendance allowance for the House of Lords. Carmen's words. Paid hours and unpaid hours. Those words exist in a context. And that context is that since 2010, the social care budget has lost 300 million, which is a lot of unpaid hours. Key workers have been going the extra mile throughout austerity and long before COVID-19 arrived. Austerity was not just reserved for social care, though. Osborne and Cameron ripped apart the safety net for families with low income. Emma is a special educational needs teacher and throughout lockdown has sought to support her community. I've made up 1,400 stationary packs and 700 special needs packs, which we've like sensory toys in, which we've delivered to Mm. schools. um, And we're now delivering the last batches to families. I think for lots of our families, especially who are on the breadline, you buy the essentials. You know, you buy the essentials and you buy the essentials as as cheap as you possibly can. So there isn't a lot left over for treats. Um, So we have worked with some of our local food banks. We've got in touch with our supermarkets and we are making food parcels up um, for families which are going to be dropped off in schools next week. Um, They will go home. They've got the recipe cards. They've got everything they need to cook. So they're going to make um, pasta bake and they're going to make Rocky Road because we wanted to give them a treat as well. Only five Tory MPs voted for free school meals in the holidays, leaving the rest of the Tory backbenchers scrambling to defend the indefensible. One MP claimed people swapped food parcels for drugs. Of course they do. Drug dealers legendarily work in the international currency of pasta bake. The Medellin cartel is just a front for oldie ready meals. Another said free school meal vouchers were used to pay for crack and prostitute, possibly with a wistful look and a tear in his eye. In the face of such overwhelming state-administered cruelty, forcing one in five children to go hungry, local cafes and restaurants offered to feed children for free throughout the holidays. Now, rather than thanking them for doing the job of government, Tories went on the offensive and attacked them for helping out. This is a scenario that Emma knows only too well. Because actually, as a profession, we have become became food deliverers. We've become counsellors. We have we have supported families when you know we couldn't get who couldn't get appointments with you know cams and all of those things because of everything that was going on. We we've we've became shops and organised stationery for people, and we've done all of these things. But actually, when you look at the press, what we've been told is we are lazy, we don't care. And we want to stay at home. And actually, all we wanted was for us to be safe, our families to be safe, the children we teach to be safe and our communities to be safe. This simple idea of keeping pupils safe is one that constantly pops up in conversation with teachers. And this is what Jack had to say. Certain kind of things became worse because people were in lockdown. We had sort of difficult home life situations. That lockdown kind of exacerbated that. Um, I mean... I know that, you know, all schools will have people who are kind of designated safeguarding leads who specifically are kind of look at, looking at that work and that work continued. Um, but I think unless you're actually, you know, when you don't see the students, it's, it is difficult to check up. But I know that, you know, I know of schools like like mine 
where there was a lot of work done to actually kind of contact home to, to do visits home to check up on people. A hundred thousand pupils have not returned to school full time since lockdown ended. Three hundred and thirty thousand pupils are self-isolating at home as I record this. Arguably, COVID has wrecked the most damage on the young and the challenges for education are enormous. Faced with all this and another impending exams fiasco, Williamson's response is a headline-pleasing distraction to ban mobile phones from school. A hundred thousand pupils not in school and all he can do is point and scream, witchcraft, burn the phones, like some upper-class 5G conspiracist. Rather than support and work with his teachers, Williamson described the National Education Union, the union Emma and Rachel are part of, as the No Education Union, a line so shit that Jim Davidson wouldn't even steal it. The schools are open. Then the next day they're closed. Teacher are not fit to award grades. Then the next day they are. There is a simple rule in life, which is if you can't be part of the solution, if you can't go the extra mile, the least you can do is get out of the way for those that can. This is how Jack describes the chaos. Everyone, I mean, you know, kind of senior levels, everyone else in education, they would know what a solution would be. They would know what's going to happen and they could see it happening, but they couldn't act until the government made up its mind. Everyone knew that the exams were likely to be cancelled because it happened in other countries. It happened in Scotland. And as long as they said they were sticking ahead, you couldn't plan for an alternative. When it's too late to kind of really meaningfully do anything, it's like, oh, everyone, it's cancelled. Government ministers regard their jobs as temporary positions until something with more status comes along. It was a thought that occurred to me after talking with care workers. And I think I thought of it then because the presence of genuine care for people tends to highlight the absence of it in others. This is Carol describing the people she looks after. It is like, to me, it's like they're my second family, if you will, from my family at home. Even when I'm not in work, I will be, like last week I, I were off work, I went in to see him because I've just got a puppet and I promised him I'd take him in for him to see so I did. I, I went in with my, my new puppy, Charlie, and oh, they absolutely loved him. Matt Hancock, remember him? He simply refused to accept any responsibility for the care home fiasco. He oversaw 25,000 people released from hospital into care homes without testing. And faced with that situation, faced with that reality, his response was to lie about it. Faced with that situation, Carol's response was to work harder. We take on the responsibility for him. We've bent over backwards trying to keep him safe where possible, doing extra shifts to avoid agency staff going in. So we're not in a scenario where we've got Tom, Dick and Harry from all different areas coming into house that could give him COVID because we haven't been having testing. We've only just got testing in February. It is one of the ironies of the state we are in that the more you actually care, the more professionalism you actually have, the more it can actually be exploited. Mary worked in a care home for the elderly. That was a horrible time. When I was at home, my manager called me usually at six. Will you come? This was my day off, but they was short to stop. And we got residents that are very, the, we need to feed residents. And one resident, she doesn't like to open the mouth only for a few people. 
once, but me. And I was thinking about her. I said, no, 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 I have to go. I was really exhausted, very exhausted. Because, you know, 12 hours from 8 to 8.30 every single day in a week is too much. In all my discussions with key workers, I've been struck by how people instinctively plug the gaps left by austerity and incompetence in a myriad of ways. Some of these actions would barely register in a public debate. Elaine works part-time, both as a cleaner and canteen assistant in schools. And as part of the cuts to budgets, she was told not to bother with cleaning classrooms regularly, but to focus on toilets and sinks. An instruction she ignored because this was her community. At one point in time, we didn't even have the, the, the cleaning products to clean before COVID. We were bringing in our own cleaning products to do the cleaning because the budget was that cut that much. Actually, I would actually collect like five pences and whatever I would find in the classroom scattered about the school because, you know, kids high school, when they just used to toss their money away or whatever. So any money I would find, I would collect and I would bring in my my own products to clean the school because there was there was there was nothing. A lot of the girls were bringing in their own cleaning products, not just myself. A lot of the cleaning. Pretty Patel described anyone on low income as low skilled. But who do you want in a crisis? A proven bully and incompetent, or someone who mops pennies off the floor to keep her school hygienic and clean? Elaine told me that the sandwiches shipped into the school by a private contractor for the kids were all buttered, and some kids didn't like butter. So, in her role as part-time canteen worker, she buys a loaf of bread to make sandwiches for the kids who don't like butter. It'll come as no surprise on hearing of these small actions of community spirit and care that you'll know that during a time of crisis, Elaine jumped in to help. In the words of Boris Johnson, she directly enlisted. And then she turned and looked to see who else had joined her. All aspects, all job titles within the council all mingled in and done what they had to do to, to keep it going. you never seen a senior manager in the building helping out. You never, I mean, what was to stop them putting voluntary and coming in and just getting mucked into the, doing the manual work? There was nothing to stop them. They had the skills. You didn't need any professional skills to be able to do that. It was easy. So what was to stop them coming in and volunteering to do that? Never, not once. People who talk to me about their work probably like their work. There are masses of people who go to work and they don't like their work. They can't wait to get home. And that's fine. Obviously, heart surgery requires you don't leave early, but generally that's fine. The commitment of key workers who have gone the extra mile have left me, though, with a sense of pride, community, and I suppose comfort. Robin is a teacher and recognises the difficulties of online learning, of, of the technology class divide, the problems of home life. And when I asked him about the students who had fallen through the gaps and been left behind, this is what he said. Well, that's our, our job as teachers to to be the equalizers, to, to promote equality, essentially, to make sure those gaps aren't permanent. But to do it, I think, with a real balance, um, a balance considering their well-being. And there are gaps, but certainly in, in kind of tackling any, any gaps, I will be there to support students that, um, 
that that extra mile, so mm. to speak, where there are those gaps. Now, I'm aware that all of this might sound a bit Bertolt Brecht, you know, hurrah, the noble working class and boo, the capitalist oppressor. But years of austerity followed by COVID have exposed the fault lines. We have seen the gulf between government pronouncements and their achievements. We have seen in stark relief that actions speak so much louder than PR. The protective ring Matt Hancock fantasised about putting around care homes simply didn't exist. He couldn't even put a protective ring around himself. And he really cares about himself. But like a crap advert, he kept banging on about his protective ring and how effective it was. Protective ring this, protective ring that. It was almost as if his mind was elsewhere. The extra mile Matt Hancock went was checking no one was in the corridor. So imagine, imagine being Boris Johnson and the only moment you tell the truth is calling Matt Hancock totally fucking useless. Then imagine being so totally fucking useless that you continue to employ them, caught in a feedback loop of uselessness, like a Doctor Who moment of a swirling vortex of time-space uselessness continuum. No, the protection in care homes didn't come from government. Once again, they were the obstacle. It came from the people who worked there, their willingness to care. And this willingness to care and professionalism are facts that I am thankful for and will continue to be thankful for well after COVID. For Jackie, a care home worker protecting the most frail, the most vulnerable, is not something she finds daunting. You know, the more vulnerable they are, the more, you know, you're drawn to them, I suppose, you know, the more you really want to help. Um, you know, it's precious times, isn't it? It's, you know, it's near the end of their journey. So, you know, you've got to make it as as, as special as you can, as nice, as comfortable, as, as safe, make them feel safe and secure. If you are working in care, well, you're probably inclined to go the extra mile. In fact, you've been going the extra mile for some time, forced to fight cuts, privatisation and outsourcing. Just as if you're a minister fighting for a place on the greasy pole of Johnson's small state big flag government, well, you know what you are. And you probably have been that for quite a while. If politics is the art of remembering over forgetting, I hope we remember who went the extra mile. The very least we can do is remember. The final word should go to Dave, a firefighter who describes how he feels putting on his uniform to go to work. For me, this perfectly sums up the attitude of public service shown by key workers. You don't think you're, you're putting on a, a superhero's outfit, but you know, I'm, I'm with people who are trained, on trained, we've got the equipment there, you know, we've got the confidence of the public, you know, things are going to be things are going to be okay. Thanks for joining us. Join us next week. Bye-bye. Key Words is recorded, written and narrated by Mark Thomas. The series producer is Susan McNicholas. The sound editor, Helen Atkinson. It is designed by Greg Matthews, PR by Kim Manning-Cooper and Christine DeLeon. Thanks for all the trade unions from branch level to national level who have supported this podcast. A full list of supporters is available on the Mark Thomas Info website. Till next week, goodbye. Goodbye.
I say it's been great talking to you as well. It's great to have somebody actually listening to it. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure for me too. No problem. I'll speak to you soon, Mark. And just, yeah, feel free to uh, reach out if there's anything else you need to know. Okay, then. Thanks a lot, Mark. You take care.